Hi, I'm William Chamberlain of the Popular Materials Department, welcoming you to a special edition of the Popmatic Podcast. Today, we have an interview with Joe Dante, the director of such films as Gremlins, The Burbs, and Inner Space. Inner Space is our final movie selection in this summer's Sci-Fi Film Festival. It will be showing Saturday, August 8th at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library at 615 Church Street in the Auditorium. Now to the interview. Video Watchdog used to run a series of reviews written by you called Joe Dante's Flea Pit Flashback. These reviews were written between 1969 and 1974. Could you talk about the original publication they were written for? Well, I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I didn't have the means to get out to Hollywood, so I took a job on a trade magazine in Philadelphia, which was a magazine for exhibitors, and basically I I would occasionally get to review movies that were going to come out, and I saw most everything that came out between 1969 and 1974, because it was just me and one other guy in New York reviewing these things, and I, I particularly liked trying to find movies that weren't reviewed elsewhere. There were a lot of pictures that fell through the cracks, a lot of exploitation pictures, a lot of foreign imports that just never seemed to get covered in the major magazines like Variety and, and Hollywood Reporter. So I would seek out in this, the lowliest, scummy theaters <laughs> new movies that nobody else had reviewed, and I would try to review them. And I... Uh, the magazine long since has got out of business, but when Tim started Video Watchdog, I mentioned that I had these, and he said, well, maybe we could do a book out of them or something. And then, then he contacted me out of the blue, and he just said, you know, what if we made a series out of it for the, for the magazine, and we just, uh, we'll just run as many of them as you can find. And so that's pretty much how they ended up getting back into circulation. Otherwise, they would have been completely forgotten. Do you have any memorable adventures being a film critic and going to the movies during that time? Well, my... my Film adventures, which are, are many, are not really allied to being a critic. I, I just, all through college, Philadelphia, I used to go to the movies, and, and it was a real um, treat for me because in Philadelphia in those days, there were still some old theaters standing, one of which was the Newsreel Theater, which was built to show newsreels during World War II. It was a 24-hour theater. And the, the scummier the theater and the cheaper the price, the more interesting the movies were. And they ran movies from the 30s through the 60s and 70s. But the only problem was that, aside from dodging drunks and perverts and various people that you really wouldn't want to associate with in order to see these pictures, it it got to a point where you really couldn't go down to the bathroom no matter what was playing because you might not come back. So you have to kind of hold it. So that meant no soft drinks. And whenever you uh, would watch a picture like The Day the Earth Caught Fire and then the management, for fun, would turn the heat up, you'd be sitting there sweltering and you really could be dying for a drink, but you know you can't do it because you can't, you can't, you can't fill yourself up with liquid that you then have to, have to expel down there in that scary place. And I remember a friend of mine was watching Knives of the Avenger, a Mario Bava picture, and the guy next to him got so excited by the Viking action that he picked up a knife and slashed the guy next to him. And I, do, I also remember uh, something similar happening in another Mario Bava picture called What? in uh, Philadelphia where uh, it was Christopher Lee was whipping Dahlia Lavi on the beach with a huge whip and some guy got excited and killed the guy next to him and there was this big brouhaha and the great thing about these movies was these movie theaters was that no matter what happened they would never turn the lights on and so the police came and got this guy but they never stopped the movie and they would just always keep it running and no one ever cleaned the theaters although it did smell of disinfectant you know occasionally if somebody threw up but um, it was a, it was really a strange time I, I think most downtown areas had theaters like this but they've long since disappeared for the most part it, it was a, quite a quite a period for me there was a, a guy named Bill Landis wrote a book called Lezoid Express 
which is about going to theaters like this and the kind of adventures and things that people would have. Your first job in the movies was cutting trailers at Roger Corman's New World Pictures. I understand you had a theory that you put into practice while you were cutting trailers at New World. Well, the problem with cutting trailers for Roger was that often the movies were imports and they were very cheaply made and they weren't really very good. And so the question was, well, how much can you show and get away with it before the audience catches on that this is going to be a crappy movie? And so we, we started to come up with some, some tricks, gunshots on the soundtrack where there were no guns. We, had, we, we found this one picture that had an exploding helicopter in it. And so we kept that footage. And when, whenever a, a, a picture came in that was really kind of dull, we would just put in our exploding helicopter into the trailer. And in those days, the pictures came and went pretty quick. You know, they would, uh, there'd be a blitz of TV spots, and then they'd play for a week, and then they'd go away. And by the time people went and saw the pictures, they forgot about the exploding helicopter. Which, and it's, they didn't complain that it wasn't in the movie. Although, occasionally, there would be three or four trailers <laughs> run um, at the same time, and they would all have the same exploding helicopter in them. So we had to sort of cut down on that after a while. While we're on the topic of trailers for movies, tell everyone about your website, Trailers from Hell, and how it originated. I was started collecting films in college, 16mm films, and also 35, and I ended up amassing quite a rather large uh, amount of trailers. They were I've been keeping them in a vault where people usually keep their films, and of course, you know, film collecting is pretty much a thing of the past now, it's all video, but nonetheless, video isn't really very reliable, and I think if you want to... If you want to have something, you should have it on film. But in any case, I was thinking, well, gosh, you know, nobody ever gets to see these trailers. I mean, they're just sitting in my vault. Wouldn't it be nice if I put them up on the Internet? And then it seemed like, well, that doesn't seem to be quite enough. I mean, you can get trailers on YouTube. You can see them, you know, a lot of different places. Maybe there's a, a, a gimmick I can do. And I came up with the idea of getting uh, contemporary directors and producers and writers to comment on the trailers for pictures that they liked, pictures that they didn't like, pictures that they had something interesting to say about. And we started it a couple of years ago, and it was very small, and it's, it's still pretty small, and we never spend any money advertising it or anything. It's a very by-the-pants kind of operation. But we've had quite a bit of, uh, of success in terms of people finding us and, and filmmakers asking to be part of it. And so um, we're up to almost 300 trailers now. Do you have a favorite moment or story about working with Roger Corman? Well, you know, there's so many of us that you could ask that question to because so many people did get their start working for Roger. Uh, the trick was really that uh, Roger had a great knack for finding people who really, really wanted to make it in the business and really would work hard and stay, stay late and give a little extra effort to their giant monster movie or their women in cages movie or whatever and try to make it as good an example of that kind of picture as you, know, you could make on the budget. And it, I think you can see that by the number of people who have matriculated through the Corman School and gone out the other end and become you know, pretty well known in the business. I was a little unusual in that most of the people who went through there were not fans of Roger's earlier work, and I uh, was quite a big fan of Roger's earlier work, which I had started seeing when I was in grammar school. And so of all the people who came in, I was one of the few who could actually talk to him about his own pictures. That gave me a, a certain cachet there among everybody else. The trick really was that, you know, that Roger was very parsimonious, and the way that he made his money was by spending as little as possible. And so when it came time for me to do my first picture, you know, I was doing trailers at the time, and they didn't really want to let me go from doing the trailers, because then who would do them? So I shot the picture with a co-director, Alan Arkish, and we shot in the daytime and did the trailers at night. We, you know, made a movie in 10 days, and we made it around stock footage from other pictures that we were familiar with from doing the trailers. It came out and went and, and very quickly, and we were back doing trailers for another year. <laughs> it was not, a, not an instantaneous rise. 
but uh, Roger is, uh, you know, is unique, and, and there has no, been no one like him in the movie business ever, I don't think, and certainly no one who can point with pride to so many people who are now the backbone of the industry who all wouldn't have gotten their break if it wasn't for him. You're also planning The Man with the Kaleidoscope Eyes, which is about Roger Corman making the trip. Can you tell us anything about it? Well, I have been indeed trying to get this off the ground for a number of years. Right now is a particularly bad time, but uh, there's always been a resistance to it because it's a, a movie background. Producers don't really like to make pictures that are considered in-jokes, although I feel that the script is funny enough to work even if you don't know who Roger is. It's been very difficult. We came close uh, with some Japanese money, but it, the, the idea of putting a movie together, I didn't used to do that. I was, I was a person who would go from, from film to film. They would call me up and say, do you want to do this? And they would submit things, and you know, rarely would I have to take on the burden myself, but now in today's world, filmmakers are more responsible for putting things together themselves, and so I've been back to Europe several times, basically trying to put together money, and now, now I can see how Orson Welles spent his whole career just going and begging for money all over the place and not working. In several of your films, Gremlins, Explorers, Matinee, and Small Soldiers, you deal with adolescents or young men who are going on an adventure. What's the appeal of that particular theme? You know, I have no idea. It's been pointed out to me that so many of my films have these themes running through them, but they're completely unconscious. I I find uh, that I am offered pictures in certain genres because I've done things that work in those genres, and so I get more offers. The ones I choose to do are usually the ones that speak to me personally in one way or another. Only recently when I've been going to these film festivals and people have been asking me questions about my career have they been sort of putting things together about there are certain things that are recurring in your work all the time. I'm, I'm aware of it. I have a new film called The Hole, which I finished shooting last year, and which is in 3D, and is practically a compendium of everything I've ever done before. But I didn't realize it until I saw it after it was finished. I went, geez, this is just like five other movies that I've done. The late, great Jerry Goldsmith scored several of your movies. I was just wondering what was the collaboration like between you two? Well, I actually did more pictures with Jerry than any other director, and it was something that came right out of the blue because I, my first two pictures were scored by an Italian composer. When it came time to work for Amblin doing the Twilight Zone movie, Jerry had already been hired to do the score. So that's how I sort of inherited him, and we hit it off very well, and I asked him to do Gremlin. And after that, it was just every, every picture that I, every feature that I did, I would uh, offer to Jerry. And luckily, uh, the majority of them I could afford him, because Jerry was not, uh, you know, a nickel and dime guy. He was uh, pretty expensive. And I did manage to make the majority of the movies that I did, and some TV shows with Jerry, who was, I think, a genius and one of the great composers. And I, I really miss him. I mean, my, um, my problem with this last feature that I did was it was the first one that I'd done without Jerry. And the idea of uh, finding somebody to fill his shoes was very daunting indeed. On Explorers, the production designer was the legendary Robert Boyle, who worked with Hitchcock, among others. I'm curious, how did you come up with the inventive design of the kid's spaceship? And how did Robert Boyle get cast as Starkiller's girlfriend's father? <laughs> well, Bob, who is still with us uh, and still feisty as ever, is, is I think he's either 100 or almost 100. In fact, just appeared at um, some tribute uh, to him at the Academy recently. Bob was hired over a number of other very, very famous 
production designers who were <laughs> extremely upset that they didn't get the part of the job. But Bob, Bob, obviously Bob's Hitchcock uh, connections and the fact that he went all the way back to Universal and had done The Wolfman and was just a treasure trove of stories of, of uh, old Hollywood was enough for me, plus the fact that you know his work was, was brilliant. And he had a completely retro um, take on how to do a lot of the stuff in the movie, which would have been completely different than anybody younger probably would have done. And it, it was all very clever, and it all worked out great. And we liked him so much that when it came time to do this parody of an Italian science fiction movie, which used to be much longer in the movie, and unfortunately is quite short now, but we had Bob play Starkiller's girlfriend's father. And uh, I think he even had a line or two. And he was, uh, he was just, he was and is a great guy. In 1983, you directed a segment of The Twilight Zone, the movie, called It's a Good Life, which is a rethinking of the original black and white zone. The original episode had a totally bleak view, and your rethinking goes off in a totally different direction. Why did you decide to take it in that particular direction? Well, when I was first asked to join the project, I I said to the guys, you really want to remake old episodes? I mean, The Twilight Zone was a show that was so renowned for its twist endings, and they were so familiar, even by 1983, that I said, everybody's going to know how all these things turn out. And they said, well, that's one of the conditions that Warner Brothers wants us to remake original episodes. So I tried to find an episode that I could change around enough so that maybe people wouldn't recognize it at the beginning. And um, the It's a Good Life episode, which is one of the best episodes of Twilight Zone, uh, was based on a short story by Jerome Bixby which is quite different than the Rod Serling script. And so I, uh, Richard Matheson and I decided that we would try to take it into a completely different direction and do the cartoons and the people trapped in the house and the whole, the whole thing. And it, it was pretty successful. I mean, it was the, really the, the, the one thing that kind of launched me in the studio movie-making world because when the picture came out, the Spielberg and Landis episodes weren't uh, all that well-reviewed, but George Miller's and mine were the two newcomers got the better notices, and so we really, you know, benefited from it. I'm a huge fan of Richard Matheson, who wrote the segment. How did you two get along? Oh, I still know Richard. Richard is a great guy. I was, of course, a huge Shrinking Man fan, and I had been, I had read all of his uh, paperback anthologies of his short stories and his Poe pictures that he'd written, and so I was, I was already excited to work with to work with him, and I was excited that Robert Block, who I also was another author I admired, uh, did the novelization of the uh, Twilight Zone movie. So, I mean, I, for me, I was really moving in fast company for a guy who started out working for Roger. In 1989, you made The Burbs, which has a rabid cult following. What do you attribute that to? It's a mystery to me. I, I, I mean, it's only in recent years that I have come to appreciate how popular The Burbs is. Because when we made it, it was a, a small little movie for Imagine Pictures. It was their first picture, I think. We made it during a writer's strike, and so we shot it in sequence. Uh, so we could ad-lib, and so there's a lot of improvs and ad-libs in it. And it, it did not take the world on fire when it came out, although it did okay because of Tom Hanks, but it was roundly dismissed by the critics as a terrible film. It got really, really bad reviews. In fact, it got the worst reviews of almost anything I think I'd ever done. And so I figured, well, this is a movie that's going to be pretty ignominious. And then, I, I don't know if it's the power of the Internet or the power of the VHS or, or what it is, but now there are websites devoted to this picture. There are people who quote the dialogue by heart. Uh, there are people who have burbs parties, and they all get together and talk at the movie like Rocky, Rocky Horror Picture Show. And all of, where all this comes from, I, I really have no idea. I mean, unless it's the idea that people in a neighborhood all do think that there's somebody crazy living next door to them, and that, 
that they band together about. I don't know. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, a pleasant mystery, but it's a mystery. There's a scene where Tom Hanks eats some sardines and gives a very memorable reaction. Was that directed or all Hanks? It was, it was written in the script that he had to not want to eat the sardines and his wife makes him. But all of that shtick that he did, I mean, that obviously was, that was Tom. And I, one of the producers at the time called it comedy gold. <laughs> what about Small Soldiers, a film that seems to be more relevant with each day? Yeah, Small Soldiers was, it was a movie I was a little reluctant to do because it was so much like Gremlins. You know, the idea of being typed about, you know, little little characters who kick your shins is, is uh, you know, it's sort of like, well, you'd like to think you'd gone beyond that. But there was a little message in it for kids, and it was basically a kid's movie. And so, you know, I, I, I appreciated it. I had a lot of fights with the uh, studio about it. I, I thought that they were going in the wrong direction for the second half of the movie, and I had a completely different idea of where it should go. But it was their movie and their money, so that's, they got to do what they did. But it was particularly difficult because there was a, a deal with a hamburger company to, you know, promote the movie, and they, didn't, they wanted a PG and it was a PG-13, and so even though I had been told that they wanted an edgy movie for teenagers, this new promotional partner decided that they wanted the movie to be for kids, so we had to go back and cut a lot of stuff out of it, which I don't think helped it any. Is it true that after your episode of Homecoming in the Masters of Horror cable show, you were labeled a security risk and had trouble getting through security in airports? Could you elaborate? Well, I mean, you never know uh, for sure where any of these things come from. But it was very coincidental that after I'd done that episode and gone to Europe and shown it there and all that kind of stuff, that I found it difficult to get on airplanes <laughs> for a couple of years after that. It seemed like every time I would go to the airport and I'd be online, they would call me back and I would have to go through you know, some sort of interrogation or, or search or whatever. And, and I couldn't help but connect it with the fact that I had been so vocal about this um, anti-war um, zombie thing that I'd done. I was watching an interview with John Sales once, and he stated at one time that you two were working on your own version of The Mummy, but Universal wanted to go in a different direction. I'm curious, what direction was your version of The Mummy going? Well, ours was a contemporary story, and it was a, a, a literal remake of The Mummy, but it was contemporary, and it was, I think, very clever. It was a script written, written originally by Alan Ormsby, and John rewrote it into something that I thought was really going to be a great picture. And the problem was that uh, Universal, the quote from the executive who decided he didn't want to make it was, it should be a period picture like the first one. And, of course, the first one, which was made in 1933, was not a period picture. But to, to this guy, because it was a 1933 movie, it was a period picture. And so they decided to go uh, another direction. It took years. They hired many, many writers and directors to work on that version of the, of the story, and then they eventually junked it, and they came up with the mummy, the sort of Indiana Jones mummy movies that are familiar today. When listening to your audio commentaries, I hear the words Dante's Garage. What movie artifacts would we find in Dante's Garage? Well, Dante's Garage is full of props. Uh, it used to be full of props from other people's pictures. When, when Roger would ask me to clean out his garage, I would take all the tombstones from the terror and stuff like that, and I would put them in my garage. Uh, but these things have a tendency to sort of fall apart. Right now, I've got lots of old props from Gremlins, all the Peltzer machines that White Accident invents are sitting in my garage. There's a bunch of Gremlins in my garage. In fact, I used one of the Gremlin um, machines in as a background joke in the hole, which I just did. I brought it up to Canada and stuck it in the shot. There's, uh, there, there's, you wouldn't want to go in my garage because things would fall on you. 
I'm interested in your stock company of actors. Kevin McCarthy, Vernon Wells, William Shallert, Kenneth Toby, Dick Miller. Would you talk about them and their connection with to science fiction films of the past? Well, a lot of these people did appear in science fiction films, but they're, they're mostly just Hollywood professionals, and they're people that I grew up watching, and the people whose work I always appreciated. And when I did get to work with with them one at a time, I always found them very affable and, and, and very good, and that we had a little wavelength going, and, and like John Ford and Ingmar Bergman and, and Preston Sturgis, all those directors who found actors that they liked and used them again and again, um, I just found that it was pleasant and easy to cast people who I knew exactly what I was going to get from uh, in these movies, plus there's a certain camaraderie to having people who are friends of yours you know, being around on the set. It makes it much more collaborative. So uh, I have a, a pool of, or had a pool of about maybe 10 or 12 people that I used to use a lot. But then in, the, in recent years, the business switched to Canada, and most of the stuff I've done in the last 10 years has, has gone to Canada, and uh, you're generally not allowed to bring too many American actors up to Canada, so the whole supporting actor thing sort of disappears uh, for my Canadian work because uh, I can't bring them up there. Tell us about your latest movie, The Hole. Well, The Hole is sort of a throwback to the kind of movies I was doing in the 80s, the kind of movies that I and others were doing in the 80s. Uh, it's a family horror picture, meaning that it's something that you could presumably take your 10-year-old to and not have to worry that he's going to see eyeballs flying out of the screen and, you know, nudity and axe murders and stuff like that. It's, uh, but, it's, but it's still scary. It's a, it's a very small movie with a small cast and not, not very many locations about a family that uh, moves from New York to a small burg somewhere. And in their new house, the kids are kind of depressed because they really miss the city, but they do find in the basement uh, this door with locks on it. And they, obviously somebody doesn't want them to get in. So whatever's in there, they open it up and there's a hole that's going down into the basement that doesn't seem to have a bottom. And they uh, start to wonder what could be down there. And of course, the question of what's down there is obviously the, the crux of the movie. And it's in 3D, which is, uh, I've always loved 3D movies and chance to make another one. I had done a previous one for called The Haunted Lighthouse for Bush Garden theme park film. And I think uh, it, its virtue is that it's, it's unexpected. It's not like the kind of 3D film that people expect. And so we're hoping that that will be you know, coming out, I guess, at the beginning of next year. I would like to thank Joe Dante for taking time from his busy schedule to grant us an interview. Once again, please join us Saturday at 2 p.m. in the main auditorium at the Downtown Public Library for Joe Dante's Inner Space. Thank you.